This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I really appreciate this opportunity to, um, to have this conversation tonight because I think this is, this is really special. Um, you know, that people get together and talk about science and, and, and shed light onto issues from many different uh, directions. Okay. So today I'm going to talk about exactly what, um, what, uh, uh, what's on this title. Um, and I'm going to structure this lecture into two parts. And the first part is um, uh, one that affects, uh, that basically lines out a technical solution that we uh, in the plant biology team at the SOG have that we think we can actually, we might solve a very pressing problem for our planet with plants. And the second part is about um, the, the, basically the technology um, that we're going to use for that and the question whether it is better to use uh, you know, traditional breeding technologies to make plants in a certain way to help us solve this crisis, this climate crisis, or uh, whether we can actually, uh, because time is suppressing, use a different technology. Okay. So, so the first part of this is, is something very new, something that we came up um, in the, in the last year, over the last one or two years at the SOC, even before I, I joined the SOC Institute uh, last year, and that is um, to uh, take the knowledge and the expertise that we have. We are actually, we have five uh, professors at the SOC Institute who, who work in very fundamental basic biology. And so, so we work in model systems, we don't work in application. But we, we, over the past years and decades, our field has understood plants to such an extent that we actually think we, we can, we can uh, use our knowledge to solve um, a very big problem. And this problem is um, that, uh, that actually our world is confronted with probably the, the largest threat in, in its existence, at least in the last you know, couple of hundred million years. Uh, so, and, and, and the reason of this threat is that we basically, we are dealing with two different things. One of it is that the world's population is growing massively. Within the next 30 years, we'll probably be 10 billion on this planet. Uh, so, obviously, because people, it's, it's, not, only, it's not only that um, the world population will increase, but it's also that the middle class will increase. And as we all know, middle class likes to drive cars, have heated homes, ACs and, and all this, right? So, so there will be a, a demand that is increased just by the increasing population of food, feed, fuel, and fiber that the Earth never has seen before. And um, because we are a carbon-based economy, so basically we generate um, most of the energy by burning fossil fuels, we generate a lot of CO2. And CO2, I'm not going to tap into this controversy because it's you know, scientifically, there's actually no doubt about it, that CO2 is uh, basically um, um, a, a main cause, the increasing CO2 um, uh, concentration in the air of um, changing average temperatures on this planet. So we basically, we are heating up the planet by our activities, which is basically uh, um, linked to burning carbon, right, coal, gas and others, and at the same time we will need more, or on, the, uh, on the global scale, we need more um, food, feed, fuel and fiber, right? The problem is that um, if the world heats up, um, the, the crops that, is actually, that are the basis of our society will be stressed, right? We all, um, you know, we eat, we, um, we basically use fibers, we use fuel derived from crops, but if these crops are stressed, they will, produce, they will be producing less. 
but on the other hand, there will be more demand. So it's actually, it's, it's, it's really a very gloom um, kind of outlook. So I think we are in, in this situation um, right now that we really have to act, whatever this will mean, to, to be able to support uh, without like huge catastrophes the, the burgeoning population and to somehow counteract the increasing carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere because that threatens um, you know, not only the crops that we eat and our civilization is based on, but also you know, all ecosystems. Okay, so uh, going back a little bit from this gloomy outlook is uh, what is actually, so how does carbon dioxide get actually in the air? You know, why is it actually that we have every year more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that is um, highly correlated with uh, the increase of temperatures worldwide? So you can see this on this, on this little graph here that um, there is a, is a large carbon dioxide cycle. So carbon dioxide cycle is in the air, but it, by the activity of plants that do photosynthesis, so they take carbon dioxide and sunlight and water and make it into all the biomaterials that we use, actually CO2 gets fixed, right? And then on the other hand, uh, this fixed CO2 gets released by humans eating plants, animals eating plants, plant, uh, humans eating animals sometimes, by burning fossil fuels that have been stored, that is carbon stored in the, in the ground and, and by other natural causes that we are well um, aware of, um, for instance, burning vegetation, right? So, so usually this is a very nice cycle because it is in balance. Only that since, ever since the industrialization, we are digging out coal and, and gas from, from the soil and basically increase this part, this, this basically um, a burning of carbon and, 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 and releasing of CO2. And um, if you want to have the numbers, um, that is um, uh, um, every year um, by natural, you know, if you calculate uh, the human activity out there, where 840 gigatons of CO2 is released and plants capture every year uh, 860 gigatons of carbon by photosynthesis, make it into biopolymers, biomaterials that we then use for feed, fuel, and fiber. So usually without man activities, we are actually right now 20 gigatons in the good if you want to make this very simplistic calculation. However, human activity leads to a release of 35 gigatons of carbon dioxide every year. So we basically, every year right now, we, we basically deposit 15 gigatons in excess more in, in the atmosphere, right? So that is the problem that we have to solve. But compared to these numbers, essentially, um, uh, it's actually not that much. Like 15 gigatons to the activity that plants actually provide, fixing 860 gigatons, is only 2%, right? So if, if we compare to the, to the global photosynthetic activity of plants to so take out carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, like the stuff that we actually add every year in the atmosphere is actually not that much. So that's why we think actually plants can be a solution because if we increase this part of this a little bit, we can actually make a big difference. The alternative would be, um, would be uh, to ask whether only by seizing our carbon burning activities this could be changed, right? So if we, uh, if we want to not add more carbon dioxide to the atmosphere on a global scale, we basically need to use 50% less of coal, gas, uh, or the fossil energy. Uh, and that, I mean, you can imagine is very, very unrealistic, at least to me, right? I mean, we, like, even if we stop driving our cars tomorrow, 
somebody else will drive by the cars and the gas and you know do it right so so this is actually a very impractical solution uh, and not not uh, already not really considering the population growth that we have however um, um, as I told you earlier, if we, if, you, if we put these 15 gigatons that we are in excess uh, in perspective to the 860 gigatons that plants already you know, take from the air and, and, and fix, it's not that much, right? So the idea is that we actually make plants that are better in storing carbon stably and taking this carbon dioxide out of the air using plants. Um, and we uh, propose uh, two approaches one is using terrestrial plants, so the plants, the land plants that we all know, um, to, to store a large proportion of the carbon dioxide that the human um, civilization emits every year. And the second approach is actually doing something that is really, really urgent, early needed to, to make sure that the marine ecosystems keep surviving because there's a lot of carbon dioxide that's fixed in the oceans and, uh, and there's a lot of um, um, loss of those plants that do this in the ocean. So, so we try to approach this from a conservation perspective as well. Okay, coming to, to the first aim. Um, the idea is actually um, pretty simple. We need, um, we need to make plants much more efficient in stably storing carbon um, in the soil. So right now, uh, plants store carbon in their leaves, in their, in their wood, um, in all their organs, right? They make biomaterials. But, but usually um, that gets very easily degraded by fungi or bacteria. So, so the idea is if we make uh, somehow plants more efficient in storing carbon very, very stable, that it cannot be released um, um, quickly. Um, and if we do this um, um, to the extent that we make plants 20 times more than, than current plants are, we actually um, can sequester 50% of the human uh, emitted CO2 using 6% of the worldwide agricultural land. Um, that is a lot of land. That's uh, Texas and Arizona combined, but on the global scale. Um, but it is doable. If you, if you, if you think that you know, every farmer would put a little bit, 6% of its farm uh, with plants that are much better in carbon sequestering, um, it's actually not so far away from, um, um, I mean, it, it might, it's probably possible. All right, so how, go, how are we going to do this? Making plants 20 times more efficient to store carbon stably. So, so the first part of this is to actually find a molecule um, that um, is not easily degraded. So that fungi or bacteria are typically not very efficient in degrading and releasing the carbon dioxide. So we want that the plant actually fixes the CO2 like it already does and puts into a material that is stably in the soil. Right? And the material that we have found through um, uh, uh, um, preliminary experiments and, uh, and data is actually uh, called suberin. It is, it, is, um, it is a polymer, so it contains a lot of carbon atoms in its molecular structure, and it is very, very, very um, um, resilient to uh, decomposition. So it is uh, one of the most longest-lived carbon forms in the soil. And the nice thing about suberin that you might know as cork, um, um, and anyone, so, so Joe Noel, my, my colleague who is also in the audience, he always um, comes up with this experiment that he did a couple of years ago, throwing cork in his compost, and the cork doesn't degrade. Um, and that's suberin, right? So, and we know the biochemical pathways that make suberin. 
So the idea is to basically try to um, enhance those, those pathways of the plants that actually produce suberin, right? And so, so then if the plant would make enough suberin, it could be stable in the soil. The second um, uh, is that um, if the root system produces this stable carbon polymer, um, we're going to make the root system bigger and deeper, that basically much more of the polymer can be stored into, into the, uh, in the soil. And, and for this, we basically will use a perennial plant, so a plant that lives multiple years and doesn't die every year, like most plants that are used in agriculture, because they have actually very extensive rooting systems, uh, and they are also very good for soil health, and plus um, they are actually more resistant to, uh, uh, to uh, um, extreme environments, such as drought or flooding. Um, so, so the trick will be to basically have a plant it has, has an extensive root system, lives a long time, and can, over the lifetime of its existence, uh, put a lot of carbon very stably in the soil. That's the simple idea. And for this, uh, at the SOC, we actually have uh, a biology team that is very well suited to this, um, uh, to all those different aspects, um, uh, to um, facilitate the carbon storage. So Joe Noel is... Um, Leads a group that is very that's expert in biochemical pathways. Um, I'm the root expert, um, so so we know the genes and the genetic variants that are important for getting an extensive and deep root system. Uh, we are all very well seasoned in natural variation, not taking you know genes from other organisms, but you know using the genes that are already there in plants uh, to actually uh, achieve those aims uh, and. Uh, we all uh, also are interested in the plant adaptation to the environment because any plant that we will put out there needs to be adapted to the climate of tomorrow. The climate in 10 years will unfortunately uh, be in, in many places more harsh, more extreme um, um, than now, right? So if we basically will generate an ideal plant that is able to sequester carbon, uh, it only makes sense and is a viable option if these plants will not die because of extreme um, and, uh, of more drought or more flooding or other um, environmental changes in those areas. Okay, so that's us. <laughs> check, out, uh, check us out on the webpage. But, but we actually we came together as a team and we started to decide we're going to start this project and try to um, save the world by sequestering carbon with plants with the, with the knowledge that we already have. All right, so that was the first approach. Um, we think we can actually generate a, a, a land plant that, that is perennial, makes the soil better, uh, because that's what, you know, uh, what, what happens if you don't till every year, for instance, and can sequester carbon. But all these um, things will not matter if uh, the, the ocean plants will, um, will, um, yeah, will, will go away the, the way they, um, they do right now, because the ocean is a huge carbon dioxide sink. So especially seagrass takes a lot of the carbon dioxide and puts it into, uh, into biomass, which then basically stays at the, uh, in the ocean and is not decomposed, right? So if the seagrass, for instance, will die, we're going to lose this battle. It will be an uphill battle to actually use plants to uh, get uh, carbon dioxide off the air. Um, so um, the reason for this is it has actually 30 times more carbon storage capacity than terrestrial plants. Um, um, and so, so we, we, we really need to do something. On this slide, you see here this uh, Sostera marina, uh, seagrass species that you've probably all seen on the beaches uh, sometimes when it basically gets uh, um, 
uh, after like a stormy day, you see lots of it at the um, at the beach, and you see that it actually this species occurs worldwide. And uh, what this picture actually can show you, if you think about it, is that seagrasses are already adapted for very different climates, right? If they can grow in the northern Pacific area, and if they can grow um, around um, around Florida, right? There are seagrass varieties that are actually can withstand different temperature regimes uh, and, and, and other environmental um, effects. So the key is that you need to know which seagrass species you can use to restore seagrass populations at which place, right? And this also takes a lot of knowledge on the natural variation and, and, and some kind of prediction, all right? So, um, so what we want to do is to use our knowledge about like the genes of plants and our and their um, and their uh, and, and their genetic variants and how they adapt to to, diff to survival rates and fitness in different environmental conditions and then inform or help inform the restoration. Uh, and they are of course also very economically and ecologically important, not just because they are seagrass, they sequester carbon dioxide, but they are actually the breeding ground for fishes um, and many other economically and ecologically relevant species. Okay, so that was the quick overview, overview of what we want to do and uh, what we really uh, want to achieve. Are we currently like starting you know, our experiments, we are, we are looking for, for philanthropists to, to fund more of this work and for um, granting agencies. Um, and so, so the second question is a technical question, and that is kind of hitting to the heart of this um, ethics series. And, and the question is, should we use, which kind of technology should we use? We are the scientists. We know, you know, I, I, we, we think it's possible to generate an idea plant that can sequester carbon, but how should we go about it, right? Um, and, and the reason why this is very different from many other um, breeding uh, projects, um, you know, conventional, is that we basically, we will need a lot of different gene variants that do a lot of different things. Um, we will need more and deeper root, roots, we will need enhanced sovereign prediction, uh, production, and we will need plants that are adapted to different environments. And so, so those will be more than a handful of genes, and, uh, and the question is what is actually the best way to go um, to go about this, right? So, so the first uh, possibility how we can change plants, and humankind has changed plants for 10,000, for 10,000, uh, several thousand years, 10,000 years, right? That's what we eat today, um, is that you change the genetics by breeding. So you take a plant that has a certain property that you like, and you're gonna cross it with another plant that has properties you like, and then you do it over and over again, and then you come, uh, you have bred, uh, you have changed the genetics in a way that you'll have a, a plant that you like, right? That, that, that kind of explained how we got from watermelons this size to watermelons this size over the past couple of thousand years, or from theosinti uh, to, to corn, you know, from a, from, a, um, from a cob that was like this to a cob that is like this, right? That was all genetic alteration by breeding using this kind of um, technology. And so, so essentially what you do when you cross plants, you take a couple of thousand genes, so plants have around like 30,000 genes, so you have 30,000 gene variants, 30,000 gene variants, you kind of mix them, and then you take out whatever you uh, like, right? And so in a, in a way, um, it's kind of like mixing two card decks and then uh, splitting it up randomly into two and then going, um, you know, the next generations to try to, to get what you want, right? So it's a, it's a very... Um, um, 
yeah, uh, in a way, random and slow pro process. Uh, and so, um, so the benefits of, of this breeding, so we could like try to increase the suburin and change the rooting using breeding. Uh, the benefits, it's, it has proven to be very successful because all our crops are based on this, right? Um, and the, the green revolution, like this very strong increase of yield in the, in the 50s and 60s was entirely based on, on these breeding methods, but it was very slow. Um, so slowness is the big disadvantage. If we think of climate change and population growth, I mean, we are talking about time spans of 30 years where it can get very, uh, very tough, right? So whether or not you can, get, you can change plants in, in that way using breeding within 20, 30 years um, will be very tight. Uh, plus, because we are looking at very different traits, so we are looking at rooting depth and more sovereign and uh, environmental uh, stress resilience uh, will be also very um, difficult. Now, the second... Um, the second approach that uh, people use in the lab a lot, right, to study the function of genes um, uh, is genetic engineering. So the basic idea is very similar. You use genetics to change a plant. And so you I identify a gene or a gene genetic variant, right? So, so genetic variants are the variants that make us, for instance, different. We, for, more, for the most part, we have the same genes, but the, the same gene is different, slightly different. And that's why we all look different, right? And, and we have a couple of you know, hundred, a couple of thousand genes that look slightly different, and that makes our differences. Um, that's the same for, for plant breeding. We, we, you identify the versions of the same gene that make plants a little bit different, right? So you identify this gene or the genetic variant, um, and then you just take it using uh, molecular biology tools and uh, either put it in this plant as an additional gene or um, right now we are in a technological revolution called CRISPR-Cas9. We can actually excise the old gene and put the, the other gene in. So we can replace variants. Just imagine if, if we could replace, you know, people try to replace disease variants in humans uh, with like healthy variants, right? You kind of like swap it out. All right. So the big bene benefits is uh, of the genetic engineering, and that's why um, it uh, has been attempted in the past, is it is very precise because you're just dealing with one gene. You're not, you're not basically dealing with the whole two cortex that you kind of mix and then see what comes out, but uh, you're actually uh, you're dealing with one card that you put in there, right? So you know exactly what you kind of uh, put in there. Um, you can deal with multiple genes, because you can take multiple of those gene variants and put it in the genome. Uh, it has been very successful, uh, mostly for uh, traits that don't um, affect the, the quality of the food uh, so much, but rather the profit for farmers or corporations, like herbicide resistance. So you all know this Roundup Ready um, crops, right, uh, where the big advantage is you can like kill all other weeds uh, with the herbicide, and your herbicide-resistant crop is not killed. Uh, but also disease resistance, for instance, this saved the, the whole papaya fruit industry of the U.S. Uh, uh, 15 years ago. Okay, so the, the disadvantages there's, uh, um, um, is, for instance, uh, there are some risks that if you include in, in your, uh, other than herbicide resistance, but your other trade, uh, additionally herbicide resistance because it's very convenient, uh, farmers uh, actually tend to only use this herbicide all the time, 
And that leads to the, this emergence, or can lead to the emergence of super weeds. So weeds that you just cannot kill using traditional herbicides, right? So uh, it's not necessarily a property of genetic engineering, but it's rather that you can put in stuff there that can lead people to a certain you know, practice that then uh, leads to, um, you know, it's like if, if like all the doctors prescribe you antibiotics all the time, uh, you're going to have antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And that's the same with weeds. You, you generate an evolutionary pressure. All right. And there is uh, an ideological public controversy that can really damage projects and scientists. And a lot of people in, in, you know, in my field are very scared about this uh, because um, there's so much emotion in these debates um, that it, ca it can be very damaging even if you have very good ideas, right? Uh, so there are general risks for both breeding and genetic engineering, and this will also be true, of course, for any project, including our idea plant. So if you change a plant genetically, it can, of course, crossbreed by pollen. You know, the pollen like, will go in the air and, and might actually uh, fertilize another plant somewhere else. And then you have this mixture of this changed plant, be it using breeding or being gene technology, right, Gen genetic engineering. It's not something specific to genetic engineering. It's just if uh, you have population of plants that can interbreed with your specifically bred plant, um, you, um, that, that is something that's very hard to control often. And then uh, the new gene variants, especially this is true for a concern for food, can potentially lead to allergies or to adverse reactions, like in the case for basically anything you do, right? So if you cross two different, um, you know, two different plant varieties the, the conventional way, there, there is the possibility that uh, there might be more allergens for some case or, the, uh, or more toxins, right? The, so the key is basically testing and to know how to deal with this, right? So if you would, I, I always tell my students, you know, if you would eat a raw potato uh, of some strains, you would die, right? So it's not that those potato, this, this potato is unnatural or anything. It's just that you know, it's important to know about food safety. And that is not an, an inherent problem of genetic engineering or breeding, right? OK, so, so I think the, the, the most interesting uh, part in, in terms of the ethics is now this. So I think the time horizon by which we really have to do something about uh, you know, the carbon dioxide concentration in the air um, is, is really pressing. Uh, and given the, the growing population, maybe not in this country, but in many other parts of the, of the world, um, um, that uh, will be actually something um, uh, that will lead uh, to, um, I don't know, dilemma, but will lead to a very interesting question. So, so the first thing is, so, so we could make the ideal plan, and that's what we plan, using uh, making a cover crop you know, that is used for feed. And I think in terms from the health perspective, this is really like a really deeply uh, debated ethical problem, right? But if we think of 10 billion people in, in, in 30 years, uh, we will actually compete. Carbon sequestration might compete with food production, right? And so the natural solution would be to merge, uh, to actually have food plants that at the same time not only produce more food, and, um, but also at the same time sequester more carbon, right? Because the, the agricultural land, the soils on this planet are very limited, right? Once the soil is destroyed, it will never come back, or at least not for the next couple of thousand years uh, for the most soils, right? So, so, so there are limited soil resources. 
So if we have to feed people, and if we want to use plants, uh, and I think this is actually the only quick solution for this problem, to sequester carbon, um, we will need to combine, we will actually make you know, legumes, for instance, like this nice lentils, that actually can be eaten and at the same time um, uh, sequester a lot of carbon. So this is kind of the, the debate that will be very interesting, I think. Um, just like to, to, to close this, um, so I think uh, I always like, you know, I work at the Salk Institute, and I really like Jonas Salk, who gave us the polio vaccine. And I think this is like such an amazing ethical statement, uh, which I think, um, you know, is really imperative, at least to me, that our greatest, greatest responsibility is to be good ancestors. I think that sums it up really, really well what we are trying to achieve here. Thank you. So um, I wanted to start, before we get into questions from the audience, with a, a generic issue about science um, that I think is important for thinking about where we go with science. You clearly are passionate about your directions, citing the quote from Jonas Salk and the value of you know, what scientists do. That's clearly very important to you. But um, I'm wondering about your path that brought you here. Did you start with an interest in biology? Did you start with an interest in climate change and say biology might be a tool to deal with this? How did you get to where you are, which sounds unusual to me? So. Well, I, I, was, um, I was very interested in, in biology. So, so, so my, my main motivation was always to understand how the world works, and especially organisms. And I came actually to plants very late, so um, at, at the end of my Undergrad. I always thought I would do um, more. Uh, I, I would be more in the uh, health, uh, you know, medical-related genetics. But um, then I realized what plants actually do. So I kind of um, overcame my plant blindness because you know plants they grow at a place and they can't run away. Still, they survive, right? And that's actually like a tremendous achievement. Um, and so I became interested. How how does it actually work? You know, how, how can genetic, obviously they don't have a brain, so how does it genetically work that they actually can respond to the environment and that they can grow? And so, um, but, but still I was very interested in very fundamental aspects. But over the past, I, I would say, two, three years, um, with becoming apparent that nothing actually happens, or almost nothing, that counteracts climate change and carbon dioxide with the knowledge that actually plants have evolve mainly to fix carbon dioxide and to biomaterials. Um, I, um, you know, um, together with discussions with my saw colleagues, I, um, I mean, I, I, w I was wondering why it's not really obvious that nobody used the power plants to fight climate change. So, so that, that's how I come here. I'm, I was always deeply concerned about, um, you know, of course, about politics and, and the human condition, but but this is the first time I really merge my you know, profession and my interest in, 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 the, in, in genetics and biology with um, the ambition to, to help change something. Okay. And so now I want to lead into some specific questions about uh, the technology of Skype. So where, where are things really? I mean, how the theory sounds absolutely fabulous, but in terms of practically... How far are we, and and you see the hurdles now being more scientific or more political? So how far are we from saying here's something that works and being able to? So so we have a couple. We so so we know that a couple of the pieces work. 
We know that by um, by uh, that, that there are genes and variants that if you change them, you can enhance suberin production. We know that suberin is very stable in the soil, and we know how we're going to get deep roots, or that there are ways genetically to get deep roots. Um, and, and we're actually working already in a species, Lotus japonicus, which is a legume that we think will be the might be the first iteration of this ideal plant. Now, like all those parts exist, but there is still much more research uh, needed to kind of like um, combine them and and to optimize some of those parts. Um, so I think um, we are still five years away from kind of the first prototype of an idea plant, but I think scientifically and technically, I could say if if we get um, if if we are able to find sources for doing those experiments, I mean, like more grant money, we will be able to do it in, um, in five years, I would say. But then the next hurdle, as you said, I think is political, right? Because a lot of, um, a lot of these things in, in this arena are based on, um, on how much value is placed on uh, carbon dioxide and, and, and the climate. For instance, uh, one way, I mean, the only way how one could actually have people plant this is if, if there's some way that they have an incentive, right? And also um, that there's enough land. So, so um, depending on the, on the politics, whether carbon trading is something that would be, uh, would be useful for this. You know, you could, um, you know, energy companies could buy a certificate that so, so much of carbon dioxide gets buried by, you know, this amount of plants, and they could basically then, um, you know, balance their carbon dioxide footprint. But this is all political. So I would say that, I mean, I'm very optimistic regarding the science. Uh, with the policy, I'm also, I'm an optimist, you might know. <laughs> so, uh, but with the policy, there are more unknowns. And that is something why I came here tonight, because I think it's, it's very important to involve the public and get the word out that people who might have good ideas how to actually then get to the next step to provide the resources where those plants can grow, or the, the, the land and and, and, and getting the um, you know politic like the framework and, uh, and the incentives into place uh, is very important right now. It makes sense. Um, did you have a question? So, yeah. it's, it's more an observation. You know, it's it's amazing to me the resistance that's developed about genetic modification of organisms, and the improvement in the technology of both the CRISPR technology and the uh, sequencing means you can do it with much more accuracy, much less uh, possibility of error. But still, there's this deep hysterical, I mean, there's this deep resistance, the fear that something horribly could go wrong. And I'm just, my advice is, is that it makes perfect sense to focus on a food plant. But you're probably, with a food plant, you're probably going to have the greatest resistance and, and it might be better to get started uh, developing one of these plants that's not regarded as a food, but will get the job done. Because I think the uh, irrational, the, again, I'm using the wrong word, the fear that people are going to have of the technology is not going to go away. I know with nuclear power, people hoped that education would solve it. And it, it never did, it never will. And I, I'm, I'm afraid you might be up against the same thing. So a lot of care needs to be given, I think, to that aspect. So that's, that's an interesting point. So 
Um, I don't know whether you feel like this is in your purview to sort out, but should we be working on the plants that we're going to use to line our freeways rather than plants we're going to eat? <laughs> I, I think that is, uh, I mean, that, that is certainly um, our first ambition. Actually, like we have, a, we're thinking of a multi-track program where most of the effort will be on non-food plants. But I think, I mean, realistically, um, especially in, in you know, developing countries, there, there will be... Um, I mean, there will be a shortage of, of, of land, probably, because we're using the land already at a high capacity. Probably, um, and well, others might be much more qualified than, than I to, to judge that, but, uh, I mean, the, the needed increase in, uh, in, in basically food will, will, might not be compatible with, with occupying land, you know, large you know, areas of land with you know, uh, plants that sequester carbon. But, yeah, I, I agree. It's much easier, and that's why we trying to sort this out right now, it's much easier to start with a non-food plan because it, it seems to be very special to people. Yeah, and that's, so that's, the, that's one avenue to address that concern that people are worried about risks of genetic engineering. But the other avenue um, that doesn't seem to have worked is the question of education. I think your, your point is a good one that um, whatever the issue, people tend not to move just because they're given more facts. So given, and, 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 I, and I, you know, I say that, and, and it, it is easy to stand back and say, well, I know the facts and other people don't, but the fact is that probably all of us in this room, there are arenas in which people would present us with facts about other things, and we won't see those facts because we have our own attitudes and perspectives. So the, the question that I'm going to ask next is, Perhaps it would be worth asking, what are the risks that people see who fear genetic engineering? Um, and what protections do we have for those risks? And that's just something that, we, that would be good for all of us to at least be able to articulate. So what is your understanding if, of what those risks are that people see? So, yeah, so, so I think, the, the, I mean, uh, my view of this debate is, it's um, to some extent confounded because there are always political, corporational aspects that are brought into this debate, right? It's very hard to separate like big ag from uh, genetic engineering technology. But I, I, I want to put this aside because that's not in the arena of science, right? That's more uh, a society question, like how, how do you actually want to structure the economies that deliver you food? But so scientifically, I think there, I can, I, I mean, I know of three main reasons that people object to genetic engineering, especially in plants, and that is um, there is um, uh, the, the, the possibility that you genetically engineer a plant and it produces pollen, and then basically by, um, you know, the sexual reproduction with another non-genetically engineered plant of the same species forms progeny that is then a hybrid of a genetically engineered plant and a non-genetically engineered plant. So economically, if you want to sell non-GMO food, that's of course very bad. If people test your seeds, you know, your neighbor's field, you know, had some GMO corn and then it like went over and then you have GMO corn. So, um, I mean, I, I don't know how, how much this would be relevant for a plant that is per se not, um, not doing any um, you know, doesn't have any threatening uh, ability, especially if it's non-food. And then the second um, area of concern is that uh, with, with food plants, and that is, I think, very much linked to food plant, is that um, 
by adding a foreign gene or transgene, um, and I think there is this misconception that it always needs to be a gene from a different species. It doesn't need to be. I mean, it can be this, from, from the same species, but a different strain, let's say from Australia and, and, and the US, um, that uh, you know, something happens and then uh, something will be made by the plant that's toxic or uh, allergenic. And that is, of course, possible, but also with any breeding. So if you cross any plants, as I outlined, you have like thousands of components that basically interact, can have reactions with thousands of other components. And so that always harbors the possibility that something unexpected happens. But from the last couple of thousand years of agriculture, where people have crossed a lot of you know, different strains of species, that is a rather rare, rare event, and, uh, and it seems... Uh, at least scientifically, um, there, there is no uh, strong indication that this is something that's very specific to GMO that can happen. And then uh, the third um, um, concern is, has to do something, and I outlined this uh, previously, with the herbicide resistance. So much of the commercially available transgenic plants are um, resistant to herbicides, so they survive a treatment with like Roundup or other herbicides and others not. But uh, because you're putting a lot of evolutionary pressure on the weeds, at some point they will evolve a resistance, much like their antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Um, and that is rather not, that's a consequence of this herbicide resistance, but not really, the, 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 it's, it's not a necessary consequence. It's the, the way how you treat those plants, as far as I understand. So, so those are the three aspects that I, I think are of concern to, to um, in, in, the de in the debate. And then, of course, a lot of other political things that are hard to rehash. Yeah, and I, uh, just to underline, I mean, the second of those three, which is the allergic issue, is one that's probably there no differently between genetically modified organisms using genetic engineering and those by breeding. That's present in both cases. So, okay, good, thanks. I, we should turn to other questions. Thanks for an interesting presentation. For those of us who follow the technology on negative emissions, the desert of options on the table right now make this especially uh, interesting. But I noticed you posed this as an ethical question between whether to engage in traditional crossbreeding versus genetic engineering as opposed to whether or not we should do either in the first place. I agree with you that we should. I think many of the public may disagree with that because they are under the misapprehension that somehow the world we live in is in some sense natural, including the work of farmers as being natural, and of course it isn't. Let me try a, a jujitsu argument and see what you think of it to argue that um, using CRISPRs is actually a preferable way to proceed rather than traditional crossbreeding. I don't think there's a morally relevant difference between these two. I think it's merely a matter of risk assessment and benefit. You've made the argument that, of course, we're under the pressure of time, and that would militate in favor of CRISPRs over traditional approaches. But I think there's another argument in favor of CRISPRs over traditional crossbreeding. And that's that, at least as far as I know, the um, Harvard group that is developing CRISPRs is working on the technology of building in what I'll call, speaking with the vulgar, kill switches or specific vulnerabilities which are deliberately engineered into the outcome so that you could switch it off in the face of any untoward consequences. And that seems to me much harder to do in a traditional crossbreeding approach. And I wonder if you could comment on that. Yes, yeah, so, so that's a very interesting um, uh, comment. 
So it, it is actually true that you can build in switches or genes um, and, and trans genetically engineered plants that can uh, basically self-destruct, right, if you give it a signal. And, and it's true for this gene drives and other um, things. That this is basically proposed. Um, it, that actually has been proposed, uh, and that's, I, I think that sounds like, to me, a very good idea to say, you know, if you have outbreeding, if you have outcrossing, and, you know, something happens that you didn't anticipate, um, which, which I can't, you know, which I don't anticipate at all, uh, you could actually activate this, um, and then these plants all would die. Um, the, it, it's, it's an interesting question, because, like, a big ag company actually proposed this um, in the past for their crops, for this purpose, uh, but then the public, because they called it then terminator genes, and then the, the public kind of went, uh, I mean, it was before my time, a very, very, ag there were a lot of angry people who basically then said, you know, we, you're gonna, you know, if somebody doesn't pay for it, you're gonna kill, like, this crop, right? And, and so, but I think it's a, it's a very interesting uh, mechanism. I mean, the I mean, scientifically, those things are a little bit tricky. Uh, they need to be designed very, very carefully. And I think there are um, people in the human genetics area, like George Church, who, who think a lot about this, and you refer to that group. So, so that might be a very, very good idea. The nice thing with plants as opposed to animals is you, you can much easier track plants. So if you have especially not a very um, strong outcrosser that largely selfs, Right, you could just like take a tractor and like till it, um, but but certainly that would be a very interesting option if if the concerns concerns will emerge that, that are basically largely due to you know unintended consequences of co propagation. Okay, so I will preface this by saying that uh, I'm on your side, but I'm also a self-avowed curmudgeon, <laughs> and in that sense, I'll ask two questions. Um, the first one is. What could possibly go wrong? And um, as, as in uh, the butterfly effect, right? Little things can lead to greater things. And uh, the second one is, um, isn't saving the planet also a form of uh, um, job preservation? <laughs> because, as George Bernard Shaw said, 150 years ago, but others have probably said it before him or since him, uh, he said that basically that science is always wrong because it never comes up with a solution without creating 10 more problems. So, all right. in, in the argument, and not, not just for your field, I think all of us in any field, in the scientific field, we ought to have a better public discourse about those things, saying what, what can possibly go wrong and, so, yeah, so I, I might um, comment on the second question first. Uh, so, of course, science, for every solution you develop, you, you're basically, especially if it's applied in the world, um, I mean, the world is a dynamic system, other things happen, right? So risk assessment is, is very, very important, right? But, but I think science actually has made this world better, right? So... I mean, just going back to Jonas Salk, development of polio vaccine probably didn't have really a lot of unintended bad consequences, uh, except from a lot of you know people getting spared uh, like a really horrible fate, right? And then other you know other um, there are very uh, good examples. I mean, we are fine. I mean, our child 
um, mortality rate is like really down. We are like very good with surviving, comparing ourselves like to 200 years ago, right? So I think science helps, but of course there's a lot of problems that can occur due to this dynamism of this world, right? That sometimes it's hard to um, assess the risk. So to the first now, risk assessment. So what could go wrong? So um, you. So, so I think to, to do this, I'm, um, you have to compare to other crops, let's say it, right? So, so we have a lot of artificial plant, well, you know, human-engineered plants on this planet, like the corn and other crops, right? It is very, um, to me, actually, uh, like these crops never have taken over the whole ecosystems, except with the help of the human, uh, of, of farmers, right? So I think it's, if you have a slow-growing plant that puts a lot of energy in the roots, um, and into suburban um, uh, production, it is rather rather unlikely that it will be a highly invasive species. However, it's something that one needs to assess and test, and and to roll something out like this in in, in, in stages that are really very thoroughly checked. But but if we think of plants that basically generated havoc, um, you know, in our civilization, there are really no. I mean, there's kutsu. But kutsu is, one of, is a very fast-growing plant, so you could have anticipated that. But, but generally, with uh, agronomically relevant plant, there is not a lot of, um, you know, like aggressive, um, you know, colonization of, of, of other areas. So I think that that is something that seems rather unlikely. Now, the, the second thing would be: so what happens if the plants get so good at it that we get too much CO2 out of this uh, atmosphere? But this will, you know, this. Will, Huh? We should be so lucky. We should be so lucky. Yes, exactly. I mean, uh, that will take you know hundreds of years. I mean, it's just like I mean, you can you can do the calculations, right? So that will be a, a rather long-term problem. And then to find a way to eradicate, especially like cultured plants, is usually not a big problem. But but I agree. I think every technology needs a fair assessment of its risks. So just before we leave that risk question, because I was going to be a curmudgeon as well and, and ask that a similar question. But So one of the things that is a probable effect of developing a technology that might counteract um, carbon uh, production in this case is that people will worry less about trying to restrict carbon production. And as you pointed out, the world's population will be drastically increasing. And as we all know, a vast majority of people on this planet right now do not have the resources yet to produce so much carbon, and it is plausible that they will get those resources over time. So if that happens, we're going to both be producing more carbon and trying to sequester more carbon. Let's assume that we can do that. What are the limits of this? I mean, I'm trying to picture, I've got a tree that I've created that's genetically engineered. It's producing all this suburin and these deep root structure. At some point, it maxes out, doesn't it? I mean, what what happens, and how far can we go with this? So, so yeah, so it has its limits. I mean, I, I I said like when we calculated what could be done if we were to make plants twenty times more um, efficient, we would still need six um, percent of um, the arable land in this world to make to to sequester fifty percent of our human. Um, you know, uh, excess carbon dioxide, right? So, um, I mean, this will be a very, um, so, so this is kind of the, the I mean, the ma- it depends on policy how much you can do, right? So there is a maximum to it. And I think without, 
uh, without um, the uh, you know uh, societies trying to um, get more energy efficient, this 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 is not the only solution. But I think in the urgency of this problem, I mean, we have to do everything that we can do to tackle this problem from different angles. And I don't think, you know, I, I you know, when I think back in my school days in the in the 90s, I, I know in Europe at least people knew that is a problem. But nobody I know ever has reduced him, his or her carbon footprints. I mean, people just don't care. Because, like, the, the, the way, I mean, most people, I mean, there are very good people who do, but it's very hard to take, like, the decision today for a very abstract problem. And, 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 you know, at least most of the people I know just, I mean, they don't scale back. And that, um, I, don't, I don't think from, you know, apart from techno technological advantage, and there's a lot of promising things, you know, solar panels in California. And in, 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 in other places, but but this is we need to throw everything we have at this. Otherwise, it, we um, I mean this will be horrible, right? So 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 I, I, I might put it in the words of my colleague Joe and Corey, who who's uh, um, who kind of has conceived this initiative a while ago. Um, it's it's to buy us time, and and that's what it is, right? We cannot solve the whole problem with it, but I mean it can actually solve a significant part of this problem. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree, and I think probably by the nature of the people who are showing up for these programs, most of the audience agrees we do need to try all of these things. But part of the calculation needs to be how do we deal with the consequence that instead of being more vigorous about trying to reduce our carbon footprint, we might say, oh, we can relax now because we have a solution. So communicating well what we're getting what we're not getting seems to be part of the story. No, absolutely. But, I, I mean, I would doubt that, um, you know, anyone is, I mean, that a significant fraction of people really try hard to, I mean, would stop, uh, like, behaving right now, like right now, right? I mean, the reason why a lot of people um, install solar panels is because it's cheaper. It's not... I mean, many. I mean, I'm not, you know, there will be many people who do it for the it, environment. It helps a lot to. It helps a lot, right? And the big changes. Is all, I, I, my perception is, is, is a lot about economy. Okay, thanks. We should move on. Uh, apologies, I'm a layman, so uh, I'll try to keep this question as uh, not as broad as possible. But um, uh, it, it's really difficult in today's political climate. It's so polarizing, uh, especially here in America. Um, which it seems that we, especially since we have a leader, I use that term very loosely, um, who seems to dodge the, the, the idea of climate change, not even an idea, just the, the actual physical happening of it. So my question to you is, you mentioned earlier that you have seen some things that we've been doing uh, here in California with the... Um, uh, I already forgot. Uh, the solar panels, uh, I've also seen a lot more of those windmills, <laughs> uh, especially the Hatchapi. Um, what do you think we, as a country, can do um, to kind of help more with climate change, especially when it comes to coexisting with other nations? Um, in a broad sense, it seems that we seem to have a problem with that. I don't know why. Um, so in your opinion, what can we do and also... What have you seen besides the solar panels that, that we have done that it is being useful and that, that we are trying to, you know, take this very seriously um, in our country? 
so yeah, that would be that would be my my question to you. Like, what, what have you? What do you think we can do that's a little bit more helpful? How can we coexist with other nations uh, who are uh, scientists? And what have you seen us do so far that's on the right track? Since that's broad ranging, do you mind if I sort of sure. focus that to say what? Would you recommend Dr. Bush would say politically this country should be doing in the world stage? Whatever you want to say. Okay. So that's a, I'm just, I'm, I'm try, I don't want to misconstrue your question. Okay. Okay. Well, that's a very tough call. I think, you know, from, from my perspective, I would say it's very important to, um, you know, to, to make, to, to, to limit carbon dioxide emissions as, as much as it, it is possible and as much as it is uh, realistic. I think, I mean, I, you know, I moved to California last year and I'm, I'm really, really impressed by, um, you know, by how many, of course, it's very sunny here, you know, coming from, you know, Germany and uh, it's different. So, so there's a lot of things that happen in California that are really, really great. And, and I think, uh, I, I, I don't see any reason why this could not happen in other parts of the US or on the federal level, because it's all about the, the incentives, right? It's all about uh, you know generating kind of like nudging people to take uh, decisions um, in their daily lives to uh, to avoid um, you know uh, using uh, you know more energy uh, like non-renewable energy. So I, I think um, yeah. So I mean, my my idea were like all countries would like you know sit together and say what we can do to limit. Um, you know, burning, um, uh, you know, of, of fossil fuels and how can we actually increase, make technology better on a massive scale to, to try to tackle that problem. I mean, and, and I think the U.S. has a very, very good track record in tackling highly challenging technological problems. I mean, in other areas. I mean, just think of the uh, nuclear bomb of the Manhattan Project, uh, which, you know, it's probably, it's not the best thing, kind of, uh, but, but, I mean, that was a huge scientific breakthrough in which, uh, you know, the country and, and all the, um, you know, structures here, like, kind of bundled so much energy and so much resources to, within, like, no time, to get a, a massive technological breakthrough that, um, you know, um, that was very in, uh, unlikely. So if, if there would be a Manhattan project for carbon sequestering plants, I, I think that would be awesome. But so once again, we turn to German scientists to come over here and help us solve that problem. Okay, I think we'd better stop there. I want to thank you for a really interesting talk. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.